In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to talk about a range of subjects, including how to incorporate traditional crafts into modern outdoor trips, how to stop people leaving rubbish at camping spots, washing, cooking and camping in bear country. We're going to touch on that again clothing sizes and where to buy for outdoor clothing, how young is too young for starting bushcraft, some basic kit variations, and is there a list of places to camp and do bushcraft? Welcome, welcome to another episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I answer your questions on wilderness bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life in general. Now we've got a bunch of good questions here and we'll get going without much ado. I'm back in the northeast of England on my way south. I've been in Scotland for about six weeks actually. I had a quick journey, quick sojourn down to Wales for the canoe symposium and Kevin Callan's done a very good job of putting out some videos about our time at the Welsh Canoe Symposium. I didn't do any videoing there, I was teaching the whole weekend, but I'll put some links in the show notes um, underneath this video as well on YouTube, because a lot of the videos are on YouTube, and I'll put some links on the show notes um, on my blog as well, if you're watching this on my blog or listening on the podcast, so you can find those in those places, and we had a lot of fun there. And then I've been in Scotland with uh, Kevin and Justine Kogenvan and Ray Goodwin as well, doing a paddling trip on the Spey. More about that coming out on my blog and on Kevin's YouTube channel as well. So watch out for those things. I'll do my best to keep you up to date with that stuff. Um, that's what I've been up to. So I've been up in Scotland two weeks since the, uh, since the Canoe Symposium. Before that, I was in Scotland for nearly a month. So I've had about six weeks in Scotland. And now I'm on my way south through the UK. I've stopped off in the northeast of England for a few days to do a few things here. And um, it's looking nowhere near as autumnal um, and wintry. It's actually looking wintry in Scotland when I left. I mean, pretty much everything had come off the trees in terms of leaves. We'd had some high winds there. There was snow on the hills looking wintry. I'm looking forward to getting back up there over the winter, actually, to do some winter, winter hill walking, winter mountaineering. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, heading south for the time being and took the opportunity out for a walk today to see what's going on here in, in, in the countryside here in the northeast. And it's quite mild today, but it's, you know, once I've stopped, I'm chilling off. So I've got my duvet jacket on, but it's, it's not even three o'clock yet. And I'm having to think now to stop um, at this time of year. Um, to stop and record and ask Paul Kirtley not, not long after lunch really it's going to be dark at four o'clock so we'll try and get this done without having to turn the infrared on today and unlike the last episode the windy episode I've remembered to bring my little lapel mic today so um, apologies if it was a little difficult to listen to last on the last episode on episode 42 particularly if you're on uh, on audio only listening on a podcast but hopefully it gives you some sense of where I was and how windy it was at that point nowhere near as breezy today found a nice quiet spot down by a stream um, under the trees I think I recorded one of my episodes back in May or June here actually um, 
I think it was the one where I talked about Leave No Trace I recorded in this area. So yeah, nice to be back here. Very different to how it was looking a few months ago as well. Um, what are we on now? November, so four months ago, four or five months ago I was here looking very different, but nice to be back. I love coming back to places and seeing them through the seasons, seeing how they change, seeing how they develop, seeing how things come up in the spring, how everything is just so full of life in the summer and then everything dying back towards the winter. And I, I love every season. I love being out and um, I love the challenge that each season brings and I love the opportunities each season brings. So it's really, really nice to be out here. Anyway, give you some idea of where I am, why I'm here, what I'm up to and uh, I will answer some questions. So this is a question that came via SpeakPipe. Um, not been so many questions via SpeakPipe recently. Um, I'm hoping that's still working because I've not seen any come through for a while. I, I get an email notification when there is a SpeakPipe question. I've not seen one for a while, so I'm going to double check that that's working. If you've had any trouble, let me know. But this one is from earlier in the year. Apologies, I haven't answered it yet. Hey, Paul. I'm an outdoor educator. My name's John, and I'm calling from the U.S. I'm looking for ways to implement traditional crafts, bushcraft, etc., into my guiding style. I do trips from 8 to 50 days all across North America, uh, mostly backpacking and canoeing, but some rock climbing in there as well. And I'm just looking for maybe ideas that you might be able to pass on about how to implement these kind of skills in an L&T context. It'd be really fun to build shelters and, it's, and stuff like that, but that isn't really practical in the settings that we're in, um, especially if we're traveling day to day. A lot of these things I'm looking for, I'm thinking about are like ferro rods, practicing with that, maybe building rope, um, feather sticks, identifying wild and edible and medicinal plants. I'd be really curious to see if you have any recommendations about fun, simple things to do, but also maybe a little bit more progressive and down the line. Uh, really looking forward to hearing back and thanks again. All right. Um, yeah. In interesting question, John. Um, it's, it's always difficult, isn't it? And this is the thing with making journeys um, that a lot of what gets put under the umbrella of bushcraft, particularly you mentioned the shelter building, it's not practical. As soon as you start making an actual meaningful journey where you're covering some ground, not just bimbling in the woods or covering a few miles, when you're actually covering some ground, whether it be a backpacking trip, whether it's a canoeing trip, you have to make the distance and building a decent shelter where you're gonna get some decent sleep entirely from natural materials is time consuming. Um, and as you also mentioned, you mentioned leave no trace principles. It also uses a lot of resources and that whole um, ethos that used to exist, you clearly do some canoe trips in North America. There's a great film, um, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, there's a great film from Quetico I think it's from the 1950s and they have a baker tent and they put the baker tent up and then they're cutting spruce boughs and they're putting the spruce boughs down on the on the ground to give themselves a nice mattress. Um, it's not really ethical to do that anymore because there's so many people going to particular backcountry camping spots in terms of its ability to withstand that type of behavior, that it's not really ethical to do that anymore. I mean, you think about Quetico or Algonquin, and they want you to go to particular camping spots when you're on a canoeing trip. They don't want you just camping willy-nilly anywhere. 
and there's only going to be a few of you on that camping spot at any given time but through the course of the year there's going to be a lot of people going through there and on some of those sites it's hard enough to find even small sticks for fire lighting you're going to have to go off and find a bit of muskeg bring some sticks in paddle off somewhere or get some larger material dead standing material um, and split that down for feather sticks and, and whatnot so building a shelter there or even just cutting spruce boughs it's just it's just a no-no and um, both in terms of park rules but also just in terms of ethics it's just not sustainable so no i agree doing that sort of thing in the context of a journey these days doesn't really make sense for for various um reasons but fire lighting as long as there's no fire ban, you can work pretty hard on fire lighting skills on a trip. You can um, have a challenge of lighting a fire in a different way each time you light a fire. And it doesn't even necessarily have to include friction fire lighting, because again, that's gonna take some time, particularly if people are not, um, are not proficient in the skill, but lighting, even if you're just using a fire steel, a fire flash, you talked about that, a ferro rod. Um, what can you light with that? You know, can you, you know, what lichens can you light? What fungi can you light? Can you make feather sticks well enough to light them with a, with a, with a fire steel? What man-made tinders can you take with you for emergencies? You know, you could teach people a different methodology every day. And you can give people, if you've got a group, um, you can get people to light fires in different ways. It's like today, Susie, it's your chance to light the fire. I want you to do it this way. Jim, it's your turn to light the fire today. This morning, I want you to light it this way. This evening, you can light it this way. You can have lessons and you can have them practice those skills as a journey in a way that you're doing something that needs to be done anyway as part of that trip and you're giving them the opportunity to try different things because otherwise what i've observed tends to happen is that people will resort to their favorite way that the way that they're most comfortable with the way that they're most confident with in terms of lighting a fire when they really have to get a fire going because they know that they've got to get breakfast cooked quickly or they've got to get dinner cooked and they want to get some sleep but just taking a little bit of extra time and putting a bit of structure around it you could say okay let's light fire in this different way today tomorrow let's light fire in this different way using materials you know it's dead dead materials that are there anyway that you can gather under the park rules under you know you can gather them ethically you know a lot of that's if there's ever going to be a burn in that area something's good you know particularly in the real wilderness areas where natural burns happen taking a little bit of lichen um and burning it is not going to be a big deal so i think that sits well within the ethics it also sits well within expanding people's ability to uh, to light fires in those wilderness areas if that's what you want to teach them give them the broadest range of abilities making feather sticks knife skills there you can teach them knife safety amongst that and that's all around fires if so if you're having fires for cooking fires as a center for your camp on a trip you could do a lot around fire if you're going to have a, a rest day a day where you're not paddling for example um, that could be an opportunity to show people fire by friction as a, as a lesson you could do that as a as an alternative if you needed a break from paddling or a break from hiking even a morning you could do a session on that if you were just paddling for half a day so those are all things that you could integrate um, teaching people about trees and plants that fits very well with making a journey um, you know, as, a, as an outdoor guide, you'll appreciate that having um, a knowledge of the environment is an integral part of your job. And when you can really impart 
um, and break through that piece of glass that sits there, the sort of a mental um, window there that you know, you're this person entering this environment and all of this stuff is there, these plants, these trees, these berries, you know, people observe it passively, but if you can bring that to life by saying, you know, this is a, you know, these are pin cherries and they taste really nice, you know, here's some blueberries, you know, this is, um, you know, this is a bunch berry or this is, you know, this is a Solomon seal and, you know, these are things you should be eating, these are things you shouldn't be eating, um, you know, wild foods, um, practical uses, you know, this is really good for cordage, even if you're not actually doing it, you can be showing them, you know, this plant, you know, this is, this is uh, cattail or um, bulrush, whatever you want to call it, Tifa latifolia, it grows in these sorts of marshy areas, in slack water, on the edges of ponds, it's a great survival food, the, the seed heads are great for fire lighting, you can teach them a lot about the, the plants that you're going to find in a particular environment, um, as well as just telling you this is you know, how it fits in the ecology. If you want to bring the bushcraft and traditional skills into it, you can start showing them and telling them about all of the practical uses. Um, and that's before you get into more sort of ethnobotanical um, knowledge where you can say, well, indigenous people use this plant for medicine. They use this for healing wounds. Or, you know, there's tons and tons of stuff that you can include. You can show people those things at the beginning and ends of portage trails. You can show them at lunch stops. You can show them while you're hiking down a trail. You can show people what's around on a camping spot. You could take half an hour, you know, once you get into camp, you know, you've got your setup done, you've got a tarp up, you've got a fire on, you've got a kettle on or whatever you're, however you're organizing, once everybody's had a chance to relax, get changed, get into dry clothes, have a drink, then you can say, okay, well, let's take 30 minutes to have a little sweep around this camping area and let's see what we can find in terms of interesting trees and plants. Um, there's loads and loads of scope within the context of a, of a trip to be doing that. Um, another thing that you could be doing in terms of the environment, uh, environmental knowledge, but also the wider environment is um, natural navigation. Um, what signs are there in the environment that are going to give you some direction, some indicators of direction? Are, are there particular trees and plants that grow particular ways? Um, what is visible in the night sky? teach them about, you know, you're outdoors the whole time. So you might be up early, you can see the sunrise, you can see um, the sunset, you can get some idea of the of the angles and get a really good understanding, particularly if you're out for weeks, you can get, you can start to see the changes in where the sun rises and the sun sets. Um, get a really good understanding of the motion of the sun, the motion of the moon, you might be out for a full cycle of the moon from new moon through to you know quarter moon through to full moon through to quarter moon through to to old crescent moon and back to no moon you know you can really get people looking at where is it rising you know what time is it rising new crescent moon just behind the sun and then progressively later each night and then full moon opposite the sun so what time was local noon okay well that's when the sun was at its highest point okay when we've got a full moon that's going to be diametrically opposed to where the sun is so you can really start linking all of that stuff in and understanding all of these all of these indicators that are going to allow people to have a wider understanding of the world that they're part of and the universe that they're part of and a wider understanding of how they can use those things um, in a practical way and if you're out for a long time rather than just a weekend that's a great opportunity to have that structure and show people those things over over a period of time so there's tons and tons of things and that's before you start looking at um, 
you know, if you're doing winter trips with traditional snowshoes, how do you mend those? How do you, you know, if you've got time before a trip, you know, do you want to show people how to lace a snowshoe? Do you want to show people how to um, make a traditional uh, uh, Indian knife from a from a file? You know, all of those things could be included as part of preparation for a trip. Um, lots and lots of traditional craft work to, that could be put in there. So think about how the environment can be used to help with the journey, whether it's fire lighting, navigation, medicinal use of plants, all of those sorts of things. Think about the traditional methods of moving through the environment and how people would have used the, 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 um, the resources either to make the equipment they needed to make the journey or to um, fix the equipment they needed to make the journey. So, okay, you've got modern modern paracord with you, but what if you needed to make some cordage to lash something into your canoe or lash something um, onto a toboggan? How could we make some cordage in this environment? Um, you can, and that's something people could be doing in the evenings while sitting around the campfire. You could collect some, I don't know, poplar bark or cedar bark or something along the way, um, stuff it into a bag, and then when in camp in the evenings, you could be processing that up into some cordage, for example. There's loads and loads of things that you could include that don't have to really impinge too much on your ability to get from A to B during the hours that you want to be making that journey. So some suggestions, some suggestions there. And if you're watching, what else do you think you could do? Leave a comment in the, in the comments below. Um, if you're listening on a podcast, you can go to my blog or go to my YouTube channel and you can put a comment if you've got any other ideas about what John and his students could be doing on those trips. Good thought-provoking question, John. Thank you. Um, how to stop people leaving rubbish at campsites? Um, so this is from... Who's this from? Stuart. This is from Stuart. And he says, not entirely a bushcraft question, but an issue that definitely needs a solution. Um, how do we stop people leaving rubbish at camping spots? Um, I'm not sure if you're aware about the current camping restrictions on the east shore of Loch Lomond. Yes, I am. And that they're going to be extended. Yes. Um, taking in both east and west shores and several other locks within the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park. The fear is that several other landowners are trying to get the same restrictions for their land and as a result, um, responsible campers are being penalised. As you know, Scotland has excellent access laws for responsible camping. We do not want this to be a thing of the past. Thanks for all your info. Keep up the good work. P.S. The online elementary is proving very useful. Good. Excellent. So, Stuart, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of ironic because the Scottish access laws, the Scottish access code um, was introduced um, to really to really combat that restriction that was going on by landowners land and landlords. And, and allow people of Scotland and people visiting Scotland to access um, land in a way that was responsible. So as long as it wasn't impinging on people's privacy, as long as it wasn't impinging on um, economic activity. So, you know, you don't want to be wandering through a farmer's field and damaging crops or something, for example. But other than that, you've got the right to go where you like. You've got the right to camp where you like. And a lot of people don't realise, in in, unless there's a bylaw against it, you've got a right to have a fire as well. Although I'd always encourage people to do that responsibly. Um, you don't want to start a heather fire or a forest fire, particularly not in some of the 
uh, you know, pine forests up there, that would be an absolute tragedy. So you've always got to be careful, you've always got to be responsible. Whenever you've got um, the freedom to do something, you've also got responsibility. And I think that's part of the issue here, that people have got the freedom to go and camp in places. Um, Loch Lomond is very accessible from the central belt, particularly from Glasgow. I and mean, if you walk the West Highland Way, which, which I have done, you, you walk from just north of Glasgow at Mulgai and you walk over the hill and then you basically drop down and you're on the, the southern end of, of Loch Lomond and then you walk all the way up Loch Lomond and, and carry on from there and it's a fantastic walk. And I've camped on the shores of Loch Lomond and you would never know that I've been there. So people camping there is not the problem. Um, you know, and we've had discussions about Leave No Trace, it's kind of nice full circle that I'm back here where I recorded that talk about Leave No Trace as part of one of the Aspore Kirtleys back in the summer. Um, but, you know, the biggest environmental um, risk is not people camping. You know, the risk, the damage that's being done to environment, both in the UK and further afield, it's not people camping. Yes, there may be some wear and tear, and yes, even the most irresponsible people camping, leaving tenants cans and, you know, not, not to pick on that particular beer brand, but, you know, leaving cans of beer and cider and bottles and foil and uh, disposable barbecues and pop-up tents and all that crap that people are leaving that are, that's causing consternation. In terms of the overall impact of humanity on the natural environment, it's it's negligible. That is not the issue. The elephant in the room is, um, you know, even commercial forestry in Scotland, if you look at the way that it's done now, I was staying with somebody recently who's got a lot of commercial forestry near to where they live, and the mess that the, that the machines make now, um, compared to other areas of that forest that was, it was clear cut a while ago, but it was clear cut by hand, by people with chainsaws, by men with chainsaws, when somebody goes in with a harvester now and and the other machinery that you need to take the logs out it makes a god-awful mess and then there's hydraulic fluid and diesel and all sorts of crap going into the ground as well um, it's just you know it's unsightly you know scotland relies a lot on tourism and people you know the, the scottish economy relies a lot on tourism. I've just been in Speyside, as I, as I say. A lot of the Scottish distilleries are expanding massively. Macallan's expanding, Glenlivet's expanded, Glenfiddich's expanded. Um, Scottish produce is well liked. One of the whiskey tours we went on had somebody from Japan on the tour. Um, Scotland relies heavily on the tourism pound. and. Um, it's cheaper than ever to travel to the UK since Brexit the value of the pounds dropped and so it's actually a good time so if you're if you're watching this and you're not in the UK if you're in um, if you're in the wider world and you fancy a trip to the UK now is a good time to come because it's cheaper you can buy more pounds for your dollar for your Canadian dollar even for your euro I think the last time I looked so um, yeah you can you can come here for for, for a good good price and Scotland is a great draw for tourism, but it's only going to be a great draw for tourism if it continues to look nice. And um, if you're ripping your forests up and sticking wind farms on the top of all your hills, uh, that is going to have much more of an impact than some idiot from some part of the central belt going up with his mates and a few tinnies um, getting pished on the side of Loch Lomond, frankly. But 
Even so, from an outdoor ethics point of view, it's completely unacceptable. I don't think anybody goes, um, goes up there and makes a mess near Loch Lomond or anywhere else for that matter. It's not restricted to Loch Lomond. It's just that there was a particular problem because it's accessible. Um, I don't think there's anybody who goes, makes a plan like, right lads, let's go to this particular spot and make as much mess as we possibly can because we hate nature. We hate being in the woods. We hate being by a lake. Um, that's a kingfisher. That beep, 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 beep. That's nice to hear. Um, I don't think anybody does it on purpose. I don't think it's malicious. There might be the occasional instance where somebody's just being completely loutish for the sake of it. But I think generally it's ignorance and ignorance comes down to lack of communication um, of what's proper. It's lack of education at the end of the day. Nobody really is born with a sense of what's right or wrong to do in terms of leaving no trace in the environment and being respectful of the environment. That's something you have to teach people um, either directly or it gets permeated out by a community of people who are doing those things. And I think the problem is that most of the people who are making a mess in the outdoors in the way that you were talking about, they're not part of the regular outdoor community. They're people who are urban, who are jumping in a car with a pop-up tent, a cheap festival tent, some cheap beers. They, you know, it's the summer, they want to get out of town and why not? You know, there's, there's no reason why people shouldn't be going out camping for the weekend. The problem is they need to take their rubbish home with them. But I don't see it as any different. You know, if, if you see some teenagers throwing, you know, wrappers of uh, chocolate bars or a pizza box or, or whatever onto the street, it's the same educational point. And actually, I think part of the problem comes from the fact that in regular society, you can get away with that. When was the last time you saw a policeman even though it is illegal to litter the street, when was the last time that you saw a policeman take somebody to task for littering the street? So that behavior is tolerated. Councils all over the UK employ people to go around cleaning the streets. They go around cleaning up rubbish that people have thrown onto the street. Um, therefore, society is sending a message that that behavior is tolerated. When I was brought up by my parents, I was told in no uncertain terms that I wasn't to be a litter allowed. I wasn't to throw litter onto the pavement. I put things in the bin or I took it home with me. And yes, there were fewer bins around these days because of security concerns, the, the concerns about terrorists putting bombs in bins in public places. I understand that. So take your rubbish home with you. That's the message that should be being sent to people. If the message isn't there that it's unacceptable to litter places and most people are living in an urban environment most of the time, when they go to the countryside, why wouldn't they think somebody's going to clean up after them? They're not, it's not that they're doing it on purpose, it's just that they're doing it because that's what they do everywhere. So, because, because they've always had somebody to clean up after them and they don't really care about the aesthetic of the place. So what we need to do is educate people. I don't think banning every single camper that goes anywhere near the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park and certainly anywhere near Loch Lomond really answers the general problem because it's just penalizing people like me, people like you Stuart and other responsible people who want to go and enjoy the Scottish countryside and um, frankly that's not going to stop me camping. You know the people, the NIMBY people who 
Uh, and you know, we won't get into the politics of the, the, of the Loch Lomans and Trossachs National Park. There's plenty of people who've written about it, like Cameron McNeish. Um, go and have a look at some of the stuff that he, he's written and other people have written about what's actually going on um, in that national park and with the people who are on the board of that national park and where they live and where the bands are. There's a, there's, it's NIMBY-ish behavior that's going on, um, not in my backyard, NIMBY. Yeah, that's what's going on to a large extent, but it doesn't solve the root problem, which is education. You need to educate people to stop them from making a mess in the place in the first place. So to answer your question, that's how we do it. If we're gonna do it at all, we have to educate people. Um, that Some of that needs to come from government because um, they've got access to places where people can be educated. Some of it needs to come from national parks. Some of it needs to come, you know, what's the, the, to stop people putting adverts on radio and television? It's funding. Um, so it's cheaper and easier for people, for people to be banned from going to places than it is to educate people. And that's unfortunately the, the, the fundamental problem. But those of us that know how to camp stealthily, those of us that know how to, um, how to leave no trace, um, those of us that uh, uh, wear green and can uh, and can uh, move around quietly and know about tracking, um, they're not going to find you anyway um, if you're careful. But I'm not not that I would encourage people to break the law. But equally, um, sometimes if you look at the mass trespass of Kinder Scout, for example, in the 1950s, I think it was. Sometimes people need to take a stand and I think the outdoor community needs to take a stand against this pushback against the Scottish outdoor access laws because um, the problem isn't the outdoor community. The problem is a few individuals who make a big mess, not because they're being malicious, because they don't know better. So all of us need to try and communicate to people um, what the correct behaviour is. Um, otherwise, they end up spoiling it for everyone. Um, but not through their own actions directly, but because other people take a short-term, cut the, you know, cut, cut people off at the knees approach to, to outdoor access. Um, it's not good enough. Um, it really annoys me. Okay, this is something we've talked about quite a lot before in one form or another. This is from Jeremy, um, and his question is, um, it's, a, it's about washing, cooking, camping in bear country. Um, and we've talked about that a bit before on various different episodes in the past. We've talked about predators as well. We talked about predators in the last episode, but um, I, will, I will answer this um, the best I can bearing in mind that we've actually covered some of these things in different ways in the past. So if you're watching this episode in isolation and you think I'm not being complete in my advice or my thoughts, bear in mind that this is in the context of a series of videos where we've already talked about some of these things. Um, so Jeremy asks, I've, I've often heard from canoeists in my neck of the woods, Ontario, about the importance of carrying a bucket and washing away from your camp site and water source. I've recently started using a large six litre cooking pot as a combo pot and bucket and find it has really made keeping clean much easier. This is especially important for me because I go on long solo trips and I'm vulnerable to camp scavenging bears. In my explorations of bushcraft in general, um, I don't see much talk about cleaning up and being bear safe. 
Some YouTubers will film themselves cooking a generic dehydrated meal in a one litre pot and then washing it directly in their water supply, leaving food debris and oil floating on the water 20 metres from where they sleep. Most videos skip cleanup altogether. I've picked up bits of advice here and there. I don't sleep in the clothes I've cooked in. Um, I throw excess food in a hot fire to burn it off. I wash at least 200 metres away from where I sleep and away from the lake or river I'm sourcing water from, etc. Do you have any tips or better yet, a camp hygiene philosophy for keeping clean when soloing in bear country? Have you noticed any small but important cleanliness mistakes that new bushcrafters tend to make? Um, well, I don't think it's just bushcraft, Jeremy. I think it's just a general camping principle in those, in those areas. And I think you've covered a lot of the points quite well yourself already. Um, yeah, whenever you, I don't like polluting clean watercourses with food debris um, or washing up liquid or soap or any of those sorts of things. But I think if you have to put any food debris into water, it needs to be where there is some flow. Because as you say, if it's just eddying around <laughs> near where you're sleeping, that, that, um, that smell is, is still there. So yes, absolutely. Um, try and camp somewhere where there's a bit of flow nearby or at least walk to somewhere if you have to dispose of that water walk to somewhere where there is some flow and you know if you're pouring away some you know water that you cook some pasta in or you know you've you've cleaned out your rice um pot or whatever it is pour that into where there is some flow it disperses it disperses the, the food. It means it's not all concentrated in one spot either. There's always an issue with introducing uh, non-local potential food sources into a natural environment. It can throw the environment out of kilter anyway if you're providing more food, um, non-natural food to particular species. Um, they're going to end up doing better. Um, that might then affect their prey species. You know, there's all these, there's all these connections. So I don't like dumping food into an environment. So I would start from the perspective of how can I, how can I, what food can I take? How do I cook it to minimize having to do that in the first place? Because th that also minimizes my impact on the environment, but it also minimizes any smells, any food smells that I have to sort of dispose of, you know, I'm forced to dispose of in, in the environment. You know, one of the biggest issues is if you get grease in a pot, you know, you're having to clean that out. There is going to be oil somewhere and then you're maybe going to have to introduce soap or at least, you know, you're going to use ash from the fire, which, you know, will effectively create soap by mixing it with the fat that's in the pan and you can use sand and water, but it all, all has to involve water and pouring it out somewhere. And that's going to have to go somewhere away from where you away from you where you camp it's better that that is flushed away by the water course if you can put it back in the woods where it's filtered through the ground great but that's gonna you're not going to be able to go that far away from where you are and you're going to put a concentrated smell so it's probably better from that perspective for it to be going into the water and uh, in terms of washing yeah i think the issue with washing isn't so much your smell you know you're in the environment anyway you know you're you're going to smell of human even if you've had a wash you're going to your clothes are going to smell you know i like to wear merino wool base layers unless it's stinking hot um a lot of the time 
and you can wear those for weeks on end, but they are gonna smell a little bit of you. They're gonna have some grease on them from your skin. They're gonna smell of person, but bears are not really interested in people as food. Um, you know, black bears certainly that you get in Ontario are, are not interested in people as food. They're interested in your food and things that smell interesting to them as food. More of a problem I think is things like soap, things that smell sweet, um, floral, things that are going to attract them. So, you know, deodorants, those sorts of things. So I, one of the things that people don't always think about is, is where do they put their wash kit in their kit? You don't want shampoo or soap or toothpaste in, you know, leaking into the rest of your personal equipment, into your clothing. Um, I tend to keep my wash kit um, in, a, in a way that it's not going to be able to leak onto the rest of my gear and then at night I put it in the barrel or the bag with the food and wherever the food goes at night whether it's you know a, a long way away from camp or whether it's up a tree however it's practical however that's done the the wash kit so you know a bar of soap and toothpaste typically is pretty much all I've got. You might have some shaving kit with you if you're on a longer trip, depends whether or not you want to shave on the trip, you know, but even shaving oils can smell quite attractive and they've certainly got a very distinctive smell. So all of that needs to be in the barrel, in the bag with the food and away from camp in the same way as your food and your cooking pots. Things like um, you don't want toothpaste splattered on your clothes in the same way that you don't want um, food splattered on your clothes because it smells interesting, it smells sweet um, and it's got quite an aroma that, that will travel so all of those things you need to be careful about um, yeah wash so therefore wash away from camp I like to carry one of those um, collapsible showers um, for a wash on a trip particularly in the summer when you get sweaty and um, yeah take it back into the woods have a wash then any soap suds that you're leaving are being left a long way away from a camping spot and okay you might be having a wash and going that you know have a wash in the morning and go but somebody else is going to be at that campsite at some point so think about other people make sure that those smells that might attract an animal into the camp are kept away is it you know it doesn't even have to be in bear country you know where we run courses in the uk we're using the same sites quite regularly i tell people no food waste um nothing that's going to attract rodents mice rats squirrels um carrion birds so crows magpies or anything like that you don't want them being attracted into your camp into that site as somewhere that they think of as a potential food source because then you end up with a problem they come in you know it doesn't have to be a problem bear problem squirrels you know i've had to at one place years ago i had to shoot a few squirrels gray squirrels because they kept coming in and trying to get food from our camp they'd become accustomed to a particular campsite um, that we were using the previous company that i worked for um, and it, they chew, you know, squirrel chewed through a canvas tent, they chewed through plastic boxes, and we had to, there was, it's just a couple that were doing it. Similar, another place, again, company that I used to work for, not any of the sites that I currently use, um, there was a pheasant shoot, a very small pheasant shoot, and there'd been some feed, pheasant feed left over the winter, and it'd been quite a mild winter, and some rats had, there was a colony of rats, a small community of rats that was feeding on this feed. And then when we came in to start using it and teach courses there in March, we had rats coming in, chewing into milk cartons, 
chewing into plastic boxes. And so we had to, sh you know, basically we lamped, we got an air rifle lamp and lamped the rats. And it was just a couple that were being the problem. And as soon as rats are very good at learning, and so as soon as a couple of the rats died when they came into our camp, they stopped coming into our camp. The, we got rid of the problem ones and the others realized that going over there was a bad idea and we stopped the problem. But what you really want to do is avoid that issue in the first place. You know, the, the latter case, we didn't leave the food there for them over winter, somebody else did. Um, the, other, the, the other spot, it was what started it was we had a fruit bowl you know, we used to leave out on a, there was a, under a tarp, there was a folding table and we used to leave a fruit bowl there for people just to grab some fruit when they were in camp, whenever they want. It was apples, pears, bananas and the squirrels, there was one or two squirrels in particular, realised this was a source of food and would get on the table, get in the fruit, fruit bowl, nick an apple. And once they realized that, even though we covered, you know, we, we covered it, they still got on, tried to get into the fruit bowl. Then when they couldn't get into that, then they started chewing into other things. Um, it's, some, it's, it's simple as that can be, can be a problem. Um, so going back to the bear country question, and I'm sort of going off at a tangent there, but I think you always need to think about um, your, your own safety, but I think you also need to think about who's going to come there next. You know, don't, you know, I've seen a few people and I've had to sort of reprimand them. It's like, well, we're leaving now. Let's just chuck the oil on the side of the fire. It's like, no, because if the next campsite we end up in, somebody's done that, then we've got oil in our campsite. We need to do the same with it as we would do if you, we need to burn it or we need to put it somewhere where it's a long way away. Um, in the same way as we would if we were staying here for any length of time. So I think you always need to be, you always need to be careful. Burning food off in the fire, that's fine as long as it's burnt off completely. It, you know, my experience is that if it's wet food, it doesn't burn very well. Um, you know, putting, you know, even a bit of wet rice or, um, you know, leftover pasta sauce or anything on the edge of the fire, it doesn't burn very, very well. And if you do chuck it on the fire, this is something else to bear in mind. Um, and that is sending up, you know, you've got a convection current that's sending up something that smells really nice into the atmosphere and then that's diffusing downwind. That's sending food smells even more into, into the environment. So that, I don't know, I'd be interested to hear what people think. On one level, I think that might not be a brilliant idea. You know, if you've got a big fire and it's a very small amount of food and it's burnt completely very, very quickly, then that's probably fine. I think if you've got a small fire, which smallish fire is probably all you need, particularly on a solo camping trip, particularly in the summer, then any leftover food isn't going to burn that quickly. Um, that might then be alerting the, the olfactory senses of some animals that you're there, maybe more even than the cooking. Um, and certainly if it's not burnt off properly you've left with that smell there if not for you but for whoever else comes into camp so I'm, I'm always in two minds about burning food off in fires i think it has to be complete burning otherwise it needs to go somewhere else um we've talked about washing we've talked about yeah and we've talked about food we've talked about storage and other things in the past on other on other trips so on, on other episodes when we talked about trips in bear country so to me, those are the things around washing and cooking. You know, washing up is another thing. You know, if you wash up, one of the things I do is we take a folding washing up bowl and we wash everything up, you know, plates, cutlery, 
um, spatulas, anything like that for the group gets washed up in that bowl. That water goes into the river where there's flow. Um, but then all of those things, all that cooking equipment, even though it's been washed to a sensitive nose, it probably still smells of food. There's probably still a little bit of grease in the bowl. All of that goes in with the food, with the barrels, and it, it, treated in the same way as the food. So there's nothing left in camp that's got anything that's got interesting aromas. Nothing left near the fire, nothing left near to where we're sleeping. So there's no so soap suds, no washing up liquid, there's no um, uh, toothpaste, there's no dregs from washing up left anywhere near where we are or where we're operating. And that's that to me is the best way to operate. I'm sure I'll get some comments on that. I always get comments about the bear stuff. Clothing sizes and where to buy them. This is from David. Um, hi, I'm David and I'm from Australia, but living in New Zealand, going camping and hiking and finding that the commercial clothing is inadequate. The clothing you have specified in your blog from thermal layers to boots and gloves and headgear, where do you obtain these and how do you get sizes right? Um, well, I don't know which which stuff on my blog you're talking about. Particularly, I put some stuff on really cold weather clothing. I've done videos on some of the thermal layers that I prefer. Um, I think I've always mentioned brands. I've got no connections with any of these brands. I'm not, you know, I'm not sponsored by anybody. I'm not paid to, um, to, to highlight any particular kit on YouTube, but some people are, I'm not. Um, I very, very occasionally get sent a piece of equipment to test, um, but I, I, I think there's a conflict of interest there if you're, if you're being paid to review something even. So I don't tend to take, um, I'll take a piece of equipment from, so if they want to review, I'll take it and I'll use it for a long time and then I'll give an opinion, but I don't take money for doing reviews and I don't take, um, I'm not sponsored, um, and if I was, that would be very clearly said. You know, sponsor. You know, Paul Kurt, ask Paul Kirtley, sponsored by whoever. So there is no kind of subtle brand placement here. You know, anything I'm wearing, anything I'm talking about is mine, and I've paid for it myself, um, unless I tell you otherwise. So, for example, I've been testing the Mora Garberg recently, which I'm really quite liking. The new full tang knife of theirs. Um, that is that was sent to me free of charge for me to test but i haven't received any payment and i wouldn't take payment because then what are they paying me for they pay okay they might be paying me for my time that's fair enough but if they're if they're paying people to if you're paying people to do a review there's always a chance that they're going to say something favorable when they wouldn't otherwise you know don't bite the hand that feeds you and all that so um I'd rather just be independent. I earn my money from teaching people. And so I'm saying that so that anything that I say about brands on here, it's very transparent. So I'm talking about clothing. It's because I've bought it and I've liked it or I haven't liked it or I like it in a particular situation, but not in others. So I'm wearing my mountain equipment duvet jacket, which I've talked about before, because I'm not wearing it while I'm walking around. It's not that cold, but as soon as I sit down for an hour to talk to the camera, I've got this on. I like it. It packs away. If it rains a bit, it's not a problem. Um, so I always talk from the perspective of experience of using equipment. And I always talk from the perspective of having 
paid for it myself. So I know I've talked about Nerona jackets before, I know I've talked about Swazi jackets before, I know I've talked about uh, Woolpower Merino base layers, I've talked about Icebreaker base layers, I've talked about Howie's base layers, um, we've probably talked about Swan Dry, we've talked about Helicon Tech stuff, you know, stuff that I use, Fjallraven trousers, Lundhag's trousers, lower boots, you know, all those sorts of things. All of those brands are easily found. I mean, some of them are even New Zealand brands. So Swazi, if you've, if you've got clothing that isn't working in New Zealand, have a look at Swazi. Um, you will get the best prices on Swazi stuff probably anywhere in the world in New Zealand because they're a New Zealand company and they're producing stuff in New Zealand. So have a look at Swazi. And all of these, all of these brands have got, um, have got websites. So, I would say, I mean, Icebreaker, again, is a New Zealand company. It was originally, you know, I know they've expanded all over the world, but it's a New Zealand company. Merino wool was, um, you know, a lot of the Merino wool comes from New Zealand. So um, I think if you manage to kit yourself out with some good Icebreaker stuff and some good Swazi stuff, which you must be able to get locally, um, and maybe a Swan Dry shirt, um, if not a Swazi fleece, then I think you're probably going to be all right in the New Zealand environment because that's where it's made for, um, for general bush use. And I'm using bush in the sense that bush is used in New Zealand. If you're doing some technical mountaineering um, on the South Island, for example, um, then maybe you need to go further afield and look at the more technical mountaineering equipment that's, you know, that's not stuff that I cover on my on my blog or on my um, on my YouTube channel, but there's plenty of that stuff out there. You know, all the good brand, you know, Patagonia, North Face, um, Mountain Equipment, you know, and, and ton, tons and tons of others that you know. If you look at what the professional mountaineers are using, and you will be able to get that stuff. You might have to go to a specialist store, but you know, you will be able to find that if that's what you're talking about. But I think you're talking more about general bush stuff. And I think if you look at Swazi and an icebreaker, that's going to cover you um, for a lot of stuff. In terms of boots, um, I don't know. I, I don't have a good enough knowledge of the brands available in New Zealand in terms of what boots are available. But I'm sure there's some New Zealanders watching this show. Just leave some comments underneath about what boots uh, are available in New Zealand for tramping and what's what's a good brand in your opinion leave that under the YouTube channel uh, video or leave it under the um, the podcast or the video that page on my blog um, just leave some comments there for uh, for David to have a look at and so David just come and you know in a little while come and have a look under here under the video or if you listen to this on audio, go to my YouTube channel or go to paulkirtley.co.uk, find episode 43, have a look at the comments and hopefully there'll be some comments there that will help you out with boots. But as I say, I think you should be all right in terms of the New Zealand stuff before you look further afield. Oh, in terms of clothing sizes, if you can't go and try stuff on, most of the manufacturers these days have got very good clothing sizing charts on their websites and i know some manufacturers even say what clothing have you got what brand do you wear what size are you therefore you're this size in ours they map 
other brands to their own sizes, which I think is fantastically helpful. I know Arcturix, for example, do that. And I think some other brands are starting to do that as well. So that if you wear, you know, say a mountain equipment jacket in extra large and you want to buy uh, a, a waterproof from Arcturix, then you can put that in and it'll tell you that what size you, you need to be in theirs. Because the problem is that extra large in one, le one range isn't the same as extra large in another range. So use the sizing chart that you will find online for those products. Okay, this is a question from Instagram, and this is from Chris Smyrnin, and it's a lovely picture of his, of his boy um, doing some bushcraft stuff. And um, his son, when he sent this, was two and a half, and he said, is two, is two and a half too young to get kids into bushcrafting? Callan is a huge fan and especially likes your firelighting tips. Good stuff, Chris. Um, I don't. I don't think it's too young. Um, I think you need to be. You need to pick and choose what you do with them, of course. But I think if you're doing, if you're just out doing stuff, you know, you have you putting a tarp up, you're in a tent, you're um, you're having a little fire, um, collecting firewood. That's all stuff that he's just going to consider normal and I think that's one of the most important things I don't think you have to get him particularly skillful at that age but just familiar with the routine of being out for comfortable with being out I have a friend who lives um, just south of Edinburgh and his kids have always spent a lot of time um, outdoors in the countryside and you know unlike some of their friends who are more urban there's whenever they go on a guides camp or anything like that you know, they go off, do, do a day out with school that's outdoors. They're just comfortable splodging around in the mud, you know, being a bit cold and wet outside, or, you know, they're just, it's just not concerning for them because it's normal. They're just used to being outdoors. And I think that's one of the big things. I think it's one of the reasons I love the outdoors so much because my parents had me playing in the garden when I you know, could barely walk, playing in the leaves. You know, my dad was collecting the leaves up in the garden when I was a kid, you know, and I was playing in the leaves and used to sort of crawl into them and, you know, just, just that familiarity with nature and it not being a funny thing and, you know, going to the beach you know, playing in the sand dunes and having sand between your toes and it not being like, oh, it's weird, it's different. You know, just being out, playing with leaves, playing with sticks, helping you collect firewood, having a fire and understanding it's hot and you just need to be a bit careful about it. Sleeping outside in a tent, you know, you can wrap them up warm and, you know, all that stuff just becomes normal. It doesn't have to be onerous. And then as they get a little bit older, you can start to introduce them to little skills. I remember I got a Swiss army knife when I was about seven and then you start whittling. You can get them to you know, sharpen a stick so you can cook something over the fire. All of those sorts of things, it can just be gradual. It's natural. Just in the same way as when I've traveled in you know, places like Africa and, or Asia and kids are in the dirt they're out with their parents collecting food or collecting firewood or whatever it is and it's just normal for them to be you know they're on the mum's back or the mum's front and then the mum's digging up some roots or you know in, in the hunter-gatherer communities that's what happens you know the kids are just around camp um, the mums are there and um, once the boys are a certain age they'll go out with the older men and they'll go out hunting and though you know that type of you know I'm thinking about the Hadza in particular here it's not all of a sudden when they're 18, it's like, right now, boy, I'll teach you. It's that they've been exposed to it for 18 years already and they've gradually grown up with everything that happens in camp, around camp, away from camp, with food gathering and hunting. 
they're familiar with it all by the time they get to the, to manhood or womanhood and uh, I think it's this, you should try and do the same with your kids just make it normal make it part of life and then it isn't something that at some point is, is a jarring thing that they have to become familiar with when their whole life has, has not had anything to do with it so yeah get him out get him enjoying the things that you're doing uh, but again don't push too hard just again you can be you can be too pushy sometimes with kids because you want them to do things so just let them do what they enjoy doing and let them observe what you're doing you know learning by osmosis learning by um that that dissipation of just observing what you're doing kids are very good at mimicking um what adults do and what other kids do older kids um and i'm sure that will be the same So this is a question f about basic kit variations and I think it refers to my sort of standard kit article that I wrote quite a few years ago now on my blog. Um, if you haven't seen that, it's one of the most popular ones on my blog ever. Um, I'll link to it here. I'll link to it in the show notes at paulcurtley.co.uk just so that people have got the context. And Alex asks, um, Thank you for the continuous stream of knowledge. I'm curious what, if anything, would change in your kit, how to pack, uh, the how to pack video and kit article um, for Western Canada or the Rockies. Tent versus tarp due to weather and insects, size and or brand of pack. Is the Sabre 45 your go-to pack even on a two to three day backpacking trips? I'm also curious, do you have um, experience with any or could you recommend options for more affordable full tang knives, i.e. the Condor Bush Law? All right. Um, there's not a lot I would change. It depends how high up in the Rockies you're, you're going. Um, one of the things you might want to consider is do you want the side pockets because some people don't like the side pockets particularly if they're using walking poles and if you're on some of the trails in the Rockies are you going to be using walking poles um, you might be and so if you if you've got this action the, the side pockets on the Sabre 45 can be a bit of an issue you might want something with a bit more of hip support as well if you're doing some long backpacking trips um, Chris Townsend, who um, was on one of my podcasts quite a while ago, and again, I'll link to it in the show notes, that discussion with Chris about long distance backpacking. His book, The Backpacker's Handbook, is a classic. Um, there's some great ideas in that book as well. Um, the Sabre 45 is fine. I like it for woodland camping. Um, I like the organization in terms of kit, um, but I do have some other backpacks. Like I use a, a, a climbing pack by Crooks, um, the, their 57 liter pack, um, which I quite like for backpacking in the hills. Um, because the other thing in the UK, and this might be, depending exactly where you're going in the Rockies, it might be a consideration. If it's very windy, I find the side pockets, it, it, it'll catch the wind a bit more than a pack that's very much in line with your torso where the wind will just go straight past. It's kind of in the shadow of your torso or you're in the shadow of the backpack. There isn't something sticking out the side that's gonna catch the wind a little bit more. So if I'm hiking in Scotland where it often can be windy, particularly up on the tops, I tend to wear, a, a, a tend to use a pack that doesn't have side pockets on it. 
So it's going to need a bit more capacity in the main compartment to make up for the fact that um, it doesn't have the side pockets on to take, put in the cooking pot and food and those bits and pieces. But if you're in the woods, where the, high, the winds are not going to be particularly high, not directly on you anyway, um, and you, I like the Sabre 45 in woodland because it's not high. You know, like some of those backpacking packs are thin and high, but if you're in the woods and you're walking under branches, if you're not on a trail that's well cut, you're walking, ducking under branches. I'm quite tall anyway, I'm six foot one, I'm one meter 80 something. Um, you're constantly ducking under branches and if your pack's higher still that just becomes a real pain so i like the sabre 45 in woodland because it's squat you know it's below the height of my head quite but quite a long way side pockets are out here and it sits behind me in a way that i can move through the bush without it really impeding me i don't like really tall packs in the woods whereas in the hills if i'm ex pretty much exclusively above the tree line where i might be exposed more to winds i like something that's more in line with my torso and isn't going to catch the wind and be pulling me pulling me around the whole time um, so though but in terms of capacity for multi for several days um, unless you've got really really lightweight small gear um, for a few days you're probably going to need if you're just using the main compartment of the 45 you might get everything in there if it was just two or three days but you might want slightly more capacity if you can get everything into the 45 it largely depends on how big your sleeping bag and your sleeping mat are because they can take a lot of volume up if you can get everything into the 45 then that is a good pack um, just on its own without the side pockets as well just take the side pockets off small sleeping bag small sleeping mat in the bottom and then it's a question of do you tarp it, do you tent it? it, it again, I think it comes down to insects a lot of the time. Um, and the other option, I've talked about it more recently, is if you're in sometimes in places where you might be able to put a tarp up, um, then maybe take a very lightweight tent and a very lightweight tarp. I mean, silicon nylon um, tarps these days don't weigh very much. So if you take a small one-person tent I personally use a Hilleberg Acto, but there are many others on the, on the market. And again, no connection with Hilleberg. Um, I really, really like that tent. And I will take a silicon nylon tarp with me as well when I'm using that tent, because I can, I can be in the hills above the tree line and completely self-enclosed in that tent. It's a four season tent, it's a great tent. But if I'm in the woods and I want a bit of outdoor space, or if it's really, you know, teaming it down, um, I can put a tarp over the tent. It helps keep the tent dry when I pack it away. I can put a tent over the vestibule so I've got some outdoor space. I can move in and out the tent without getting wet as soon as I get out the tent. So I can put jackets on and things outside the tent. Um, if you use a tent that has a separate outer and inner, in hot weather, you might want to most of the time, just because of the insects, sleep out with the tent inner. But if you're worried about it maybe raining overnight, maybe you put a tarp over the top in case there's a shower. So a tent and a tarp is quite a good flexible combination as long as they don't weigh too much. And we live in a, an era now, unlike even 20, 25 years ago when I was first backpacking, uh, 20, 25 years ago, um, you just couldn't get this lightweight gear that you can get now. So you were having to make more choices, you know, like, do I take the heavy tent or do I take the heavy bivy bag and the heavy tarp? Um, now you can take a lightweight tent and a lightweight tarp and you've got much more flexibility. So think about that. And again, going back, I've said this multiple times before, 
these are always engineering problems. What do you want the kit to do? What circumstances, what different parameters are you applying? Do you want to be able to camp above the tree line in pouring driving rain, but do you also want to sleep in the woods um, with the air blowing around you? You know, what do you actually want to be able to do? What do you need to be able to do to stay safe and comfortable and avoid hypothermia and avoid horrendous insect bites? And what also would you like to do in terms of what you enjoy, what's going to be most comfortable? Uh, do you like waking up with, you know, a breeze across your face or do you like being you know, enclosed, do you feel more secure in a, in a tent? It's up to you, it's a personal choice. There's no right or wrong answer other than doing the right thing to avoid the hazards of the actual environment. Other than that, it's personal choice. And one of the reasons we go to these places is to enjoy it. So choose what you, choose what you want. Um, and we've got more options now than we've ever had because the, the kit's got lighter and lighter and lighter, which is fantastic. But if you get a lightweight tent, a lightweight sleeping bag, and a lightweight tarp, and two to three days food, and a small titanium cooking pot, and a good water shell, and a good warm layer, you could get all of that in a, 40, a Sabre 45. You really could. And your question about cheaper full tang knives. Um, as I say, I've been using the Garberg, the Mora Garberg quite a lot recently, and I, I'm liking that. Um, it's tough. Um, it's, uh, it works with a fire steel. Um, I've used it quite a lot with things that would make other knives rusty and it hasn't gone rusty. Um, I'm not, I find the handle a little bit plasticky, but it's robust, it's tough. I haven't managed to break it. I've battened it through some really nasty, knotty bits of wood. I haven't managed to break it yet. It sharpens pretty easily. It's got a good edge on it. I would have a look at the Garberg. Um, I've not personally used the Condor Bushlaw. Um, other people say it's quite good. I, I, I don't have an opinion. Um, I think people are attracted to it because it is cheaper. Um, so, so yeah, but I would say alongside the Condor, have a look at the Garberg because I'd be quite happy with the Garberg as a relatively inexpensive but full tang knife. But also ask the question, do you need a full tang knife? If you're, if you're not battening or you're not, um, you're not gonna use it roughly, and if you're backpacking and you're moving from A to B, going back to the question that John had earlier in the session, if you're going from A to B and you're not doing lots and lots and lots of, you know, static camp craft work and, and whatnot, maybe you can get away with something that's lighter. Always comes back to weight versus utility. That's the thing. Um, if you think you need a, a full tang knife, which when I go into really wild places, I, particularly the wild places that have got a lot of wood and trees, um, I will take a full tang knife because that's that needs not to break. If I can't resupply and I really need the knife to work for the duration of the trip, I'll take a full tang knife. If I'm doing a backpacking trip where I might occasionally need to make, to make a feather stick and, um, or cut a packet open or something, then maybe I'll consider taking something that's lighter weight because at the end of the day, 100 grams here, 100 grams there, 100 grams there on, on your back in particular, um, makes a big difference. So again, it's an engineering problem. What do you need it to do? How often do you need it to do it? How critical is it that it doesn't break? 
that will give you your answer about what you need and then work to a price point and as I say I think for I think in the UK it's less than a hundred pounds the um, the Garberg is a good solid full tang knife that that works Did I answer everything about kit variations there? I feel like I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only other thing with the, with, the, with the Rockies is if you're higher up, you might get colder weather later in the year and in the, later in the beginning of the year and earlier at the, at the end of the year, you might need to move on to a warmer sleeping bag. I, if I'm backpacking and I need warmth for weight, I'll always go for a down bag. Um, and I know they're expensive, but if you spend a lot of time outdoors and you're carrying the bag on your back when you're not sleeping in it, then it's worth investing in it. Look after it, get a silk liner for it, um, make sure it's cleaned on a fairly regular basis and it will last you a long time. I'm still using down bags that I bought more than 25 years ago. So if you look at the cost per year, it's not that much. It's just it's big investment up front, um, but it's it's worth it because they take up less room in your pack. They're lighter and they're just as warm. They're very cozy to get into. As I say, use a silk liner as well, which adds warmth and comfort. Um, gives you more flexibility in different warm because you can sleep with just the liner and the bag open, um, or you can sleep with everything zipped up in cold weather it gives you more flexibility in terms of temperature uh, variations as well so that's the only other thing that I would look at versus my article which was a synthetic bag if you're going to be carrying it a long way and you need more flexibility in terms of temperature range look at a down bag and get a silk liner for it as well okay let's move on it's getting dark again and I think I've been talking for more than an hour so This is from Tony Handley. He says, Hi Paul, I'm new to your podcast, but not to bushcraft. I first got into the great outdoors in the late 70s as a scout, and in later years had my own woods to go practice my skills. Very nice. Um, my circumstances changed a few years ago and I had to sell the woods. I still get out for days on the moors, but really miss overnighting under my tarp in the woods. So here's my question. Is there a list, maybe a website of woodland owners who rent out their land to people like us who want to get close to nature for a few days loving the podcasts keep up the great work tony aka indie bush um there isn't one that i'm aware of the nearest thing that i'm aware of to a list of places you can go and camp in that way is a website that i was made aware of when i was at the bushcraft show this year and um, it still is 2016 yep yeah, this this summer it seems like a long time ago and um, we're already looking at the bushcraft show for next year um, but yeah it's called nearly wild camping i think it's .co.uk but it could be .org it could be .com i don't know but nearly wild camping and that has a network of spots where you can go and camp as it says nearly wild so they encourage people to to go and do wild camping type activities but it is a um, somewhere where you've got permission I think you maybe need to pay a fee so it's like a, a campsite you know like you might go and camp in a farmer's field um, and pay him a few quid 
it's like that but it's somewhere where you can go and do the sort of things that you're talking about is, is my understanding and certainly that was the message that they were they, they seem to be putting across at the bushcraft show this year um other than that i think it's you know you're in a kind of a unique position amongst many you know, most people who ask this question about where can i go and camp because you've been a landowner yourself so you understand um about owning some woods and what that entails and the concerns that you might have as a landowner in terms of people just randomly turning up and camping and having fires you understand that um if you want to find somewhere that you can regularly regularly go i would i would suggest that you approach a landowner i know it's not always easy to find out who owns a particular piece of land but if you do some research locally you can normally find out who owns you know who owns the piece of land is it a local estate is it a farmer is it somebody who lives in town and come you know whatever the situation is you can normally by asking people locally find out whose land it is approach them you in a nice position where you can say hey i understand your concerns but i used to own my own woods too and i you know i understand so i will look after those woods when i camp there in the same way as if they were mine that would be a good line to 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 have a conversation with the landowner and i think that would go a long way to putting their mind at, at rest about you being um and going back to the question about rubbish and and making a mess landowners are concerned about people camping particularly camping with fires because they, are they going to leave a mess are they going to cause a fire are they going to cause damage um, are they going to damage my investment um, are they going to damage um, my livelihood are they going to damage my recreational spot are they going to damage a place that my family's looked after for years and we've kept it pristine all of these concerns go through a landowner's head when somebody turns up on their doorstep or gives them a ring and says, can I come and camp on your land and do bushcraft and have a fire? So, you know, spark up a conversation with them um, at the right moment. And there is a, there's an article on my blog. Again, a lot of these questions I've had multiple times, but there's, there's an article on my blog about how to find a place to camp and do bushcraft in the UK and practice bushcraft. I'll link it up here at the top of the video and i'll link it in the show notes as well so if you're listening on the podcast as always go across to paulcurtley.co.uk find episode 43 in the show notes you'll find a link to that article but that gives some ideas about how you form a relationship with a landowner it also gives you some ideas about what the concerns are because it's exactly the same position for me but in some ways um multiplied if i as Paul Kirtley with my company Frontier Bushcraft go to a landowner and say hey we'd like to come to your woods and we want to camp and we want to bring a bunch of other people into camp and we want to teach them how to light fires and do all this other stuff under the umbrella of bushcraft is that all right that is the answer to that is normally going to be no unless you build a relationship with them or you have a um you offer them lots of money or you um or you have an introduction so it's exactly the same for me but sometimes exacerbated when i try and find a site for um for teaching bushcraft and i have been rejected you know i've i've approached a landowner in a professional manner and they've just said no because it's just not they've got so much other stuff going on particularly larger states it's just not always worth their while in considering it they've just got too much on um and i and i understand that and i appreciate that and i respect that but so you have to pick the right moment um, but i think the fact that you're going to have some empathy towards their position because you 
have owned your own woods in the past. You've got the empathy genuinely, but you can also say that uh, to, to convince them that you understand what you need to do. You've got experience of camping in that way in the past. You've got experience of owning that type of woodland. You've got experience of having the same concerns that they're going to have. That will probably take you quite a long way with the right landowner. And if you find you're having to twist somebody's arm too much in the first place, they're probably not the right person to be speaking to. Move on to the next, move on to the next, because they're always going to be doubtful. If you've had to really convince them and you've just pushed them over the edge into convincing them, they're always going to have that niggle. Mm, did I do the right thing? Um, you want somebody that's going to be understanding the other way as well. And you can find those people. They are there. It just takes a little bit of time. But as I say, have a look at the Nearly Wild camping site as well. That might give you what you need in the short term. But if you really want a regular spot that you can go to that's a bit quiet and private, I would say have a, have a word with the right landowner in the right way at the right moment and you'll probably get what you need. Okay, that brings us to the end of another episode. It's four o'clock here, it's getting dark. Um, I can see that the screen is getting grainy that I'm looking at there on the camera. Haven't needed to turn on the infrared today, but do go and um, check out those other articles on my blog. We've linked to quite a few today. Check those out if you haven't seen those, and clearly some of you haven't seen them because I'm getting questions about stuff I've already written about, which is fantastic. That's why I do these do these sessions, um, go to my blog paulkirtley.co.uk, list of all of those things that we've talked about today and some other relevant articles and podcasts and blogs will be there. Um, other stuff to look out for, I will try and link to Kevin's articles and uh, videos more likely when they come out about our spay trip and um, check out the recent podcast as well that we did at the end of our trip um, where we did a bit of a post-trip postscript chat with me justine ray and kevin that's the most recent paul kirtley podcast and if you're not subscribed to my podcast via your normal podcasting app that is only a podcast it's not video so apple podcasting app stitcher itunes or direct download from my site but make sure you subscribe to my email so you know when they come out please do that as well and if you could take 30 seconds if you're a podcast listener to rate this on the platform that you listen it listen to it on whether that be itunes or elsewhere please do it makes a difference it gets it in front of more people like you who are interested in this stuff we build the community around this more knowledge sharing for everyone which is fantastic so thank you for your support thanks for listening i'll sign off for now and i'll see you on episode 44 of ask paul kirtley take care